Hi, this is Dan Siegel, author of the book Aware and the book Mind and the Developing Mind, and you're listening to The Soul of Life. Obviously, it's more dramatic if somebody who's perfectly healthy one day dies the next day at the age of 20. I've had too many tragic experiences like that with my own patients. I got interested in this because I watched my alcoholic and drug addict people painfully but successfully get sober only to die of nicotine. Today on The Soul of Life, I speak with Dr. George Kolodner. I think it's by far the biggest addiction in terms of morbidity and mortality, and yet it gets the least attention from addiction professionals and the general population. George Kolodner in the 1970s was one of the first psychiatrists to innovate with treatment of addiction by offering an alternative to inpatient hospitalization. He co-founded the Colmac Clinics in the Washington, D.C. area and pioneered the now incredibly vital and commonplace intensive outpatient addiction treatment model. We lost uh, 100,000 people due to opioid overdose last year. At the same time, we lost almost half a million people to nicotine. George and I talk about the tragic mistake of Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, who actually encouraged people to smoke if it helped them quit alcohol. Bill Wilson himself died a miserable death. Claudner has been learning the cutting-edge psychotherapy intervention known as internal family systems and putting it to use especially to confidently speak hope to parts of people that feel despair toward a seemingly unstoppable addiction. The IFS, it's like motivational interviewing on steroids. Instead of one uh, devil here and an angel there, there are multitude of opinions, parts, uh, not just on the side, but in front and in back, and the person is caught in the middle of this. Finally, I ask George whether he thinks ketamine may be the kind of game-changing breakthrough medication that many people are reporting it to be. At a mainstream medical benefit that in the 1930s was locked away, research was shut down, practice was shut down, and it's being rolled out now. So I think all these things are potentially promising. Welcome to The Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is Episode 8 of Season 4. Why aren't we taking nicotine addiction seriously? I'm going to my vapors and my smokers and saying, you know what? I know you've tried four or five times the smoking cessation, but you haven't tried the things that work. And if you do that, you will have a much better chance. There was no definition of the mind that anybody had. I'm Keith Miller. That's really weird. Can we swear on this? Something you hear at a swing party. <laughs> Something that sounds fun. We don't treat trauma. No, we treat the imprint of traumatic experience. I stood on top of the Olympic podium, very incomplete, not happy, and never ever thinking that I was good enough. Donald watched his older brother be destroyed that way, so he had to exile all of those sensitive parts of him. Free soloing is climbing without ropes. Alex was born for climbing. Cannabis use disorder is real. There's no question about it. The, the broccoli growers of America are livid every time that they listen to this part of your podcast. What happens before sex? What happens during sex? What happens after sex? Compassion is contagious. We've got to have cake. Oh my God, I totally am bisexual and that's where I gotta be. He's incredibly successful by just talking shit about people's fried rice. This is the soul of life. Hey, it's Keith Miller. I just want you to know that I've created a bunch of inexpensive and free courses on 
marriage improvement, mindfulness, and stress reduction, just head on over to souloflifeshow.com forward slash courses and check out the cool resources there. Again, that's souloflifeshow.com forward slash courses. My guest today is Dr. George Kolodner. He's a board-certified addiction psychiatrist and who specializes in the intensive outpatient treatment of substance abuse disorders. He founded Colmac Outpatient Recovery Centers in 1973 and worked relentlessly over the years to increase awareness of intensive outpatient treatment while keeping Colmac on the cusp of leading-edge treatment for men, women, and men. Dr. Kolodner served in the Navy in 1973, and he designed and implemented the first IOP addiction treatment program in the country at Colmac. Since then, his primary focus has been on developing outpatient treatment strategies for managing withdrawal and rehabilitation services for people with substance use disorders. George, how are you today? Welcome to the Soul of Life. Keith, good to be here. I'm excited to speak with you about addictions today because I know that has been something you've dedicated your career to. A lot of people struggle with addictions. We're, we're in a mental health epidemic for one thing. And as we know, what goes with mental illness and uh, emotional disorders is substance abuse and substance use disorders. So I'm curious. I'd just love to hear a little bit about what you're up to currently. And maybe we'll get a chance to talk about um, your your work in founding in intensive outpatient treatment centers, how that con- contrasts with um, other types of treatment, what people can find available today. Sure. Uh, glad to talk about that. I'm uh, Right now, I'm focusing uh, exclusively on uh, nicotine addiction. Uh, I use the word nicotine because we used to talk about tobacco, but it's pretty clear that uh, vaping is going to be the problem of the future. And uh, uh, nicotine is the common thread between tobacco and vaping. And uh, I'm interested in that because I, I think there's a discrepancy between the enormity of the problem. In other words, I think it's by far the biggest addiction in terms of morbidity and mortality. And yet it gets the least attention, uh, from addiction professionals, uh, and the, uh, the general population. So that made me curious. And it also provides an opportunity to, uh, to really make a difference, uh, in an area that's not being that well uh, attended to. So <laughs> what I noticed was that there is an enormous amount being done uh, on the treatment side. Uh, when it comes to nicotine addiction, but it falls within the area of smoking cessation. And there's a lot going on uh, in that area, but the people who are doing that are not addiction specialists. And what has struck me is that we've learned an enormous amount about dealing effectively with uh, substance use disorders, alcohol, opioid, uh, cocaine, stimulants, cannabis, but that body of knowledge is not generally applied to nicotine. And uh, uh, so that's what I'm trying to do is, is combine the, the smoking cessation approach with the, uh, with the knowledge and interventions of uh, traditional addictions treatment and then pulling in uh, things like uh, IFS adaptations 
which I think uh, uh, in, will increase the, the power and potential positive outcome of the combined intervention. And just for our listeners' sake, IFS's internal family systems therapy, something that I covered quite a bit on this podcast. People can refer back to other episodes to learn more about IFS. Um, and and just to just to piggyback on something you said there that that you mentioned you referred to you know traditional recovery treatment um, and and how it doesn't really include and doesn't target nicotine per se. Can we talk a little bit? For a moment broadly, um, for the average person who may not be uh, familiar with clinical treatment of addiction, uh, what, what does it entail, George? What, what are what are what are the menu choices for someone who has a loved one who is struggling with addiction abuse? I'm sorry, substance abuse or addiction. What are what are their choices when they're faced with that? There are uh, uh, basically. Uh, three choices. Uh, one is uh, do it yourself with no help. Uh, the percentage of people who manage that, the percentage success is very low, but the numbers of people who do it is so high that probably more people uh, manage this successfully on their own than those who take the other two tracks. The, the second track is uh, non-professional, uh, peer support. That area has been dominated by the 12 step programs, specifically AA, uh, since the 1930s when it was founded. And, uh, it is not for everybody, but their track record is, uh, in my view, very positive. The 12 step program, alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, the big book, um, was such a game changer that it, it really has dominated the uh, treatment field as far as addictions. On the other hand, I think it sounds like you're saying there's there's downsides to it. It's not for everybody. Yeah, it's uh, nothing is for everybody. So uh, the, the more choices you have, the better. And fortunately, <clears throat> there are many more choices uh, for people who can either uh, use use these other options, such as smart recovery, which is a cognitively based uh, approach. There's, there's others that are specifically religious, like celebrate recovery. Uh, so there are different things for different people. And uh, more and more, instead of being competitive, people are combining these different approaches and using them multiply. So on the, uh, the non-professional peer support, there are a lot of options out there. And the price is certainly right. And the convenience is, is right. And then the third track is professional treatment. And uh, that basically comes in two flavors, if you will. The traditional uh, addiction treatment was residentially based, your typical 28-day rehab. And and that was the really only option when I got interested in the early 70s. And I was very impressed with it. That's the first effective professional treatment I ever saw was in a residential setting. But most people can't access residential, either because they can't take a month off or uh, they can't afford it. Um, so I became very interested in adapting the residential um, model to an outpatient setting, particularly, uh, especially for people who are working. That became my, my primary focus, people who were working or who had uh, responsibilities of, of maintaining a home, typically the moms. 
So uh, that's why I developed what eventually became intensive outpatient. And uh, the, the, the study, the few studies that are out there uh, uh, support the notion that for most people, for 90% of the people, an outpatient option is just as effective as inpatient. And it's, it's more accessible, much more accessible. I and mean, it also happens to be about 20% of the cost. Right, right. So it allows people to fit addictions treatment into their life. The, the, the barrier for them to say no, the reasons for them to say no is lowered. Exactly. The programs that, that we set up were in the evening after work hours, they were covered by insurance and they were geographically clo- quite close to where people lived and worked. So those very practical barriers are, are I think, important to address. Yeah. And, and, and as it relates to what people actually do in the program, Mm-hmm. In in a intensive outpatient program like the Colmac clinic offers, um, walk me through a little bit what that looks like. So they do an intake. They 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 do get a psychiatric diagnosis that 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 triggers the reimbursement for insurance, so it gets covered. And then, what's the course for a person who's who says, "Okay, I, I'm I'm at the stage of admitting that I've got a problem, or at least I'm willing to." Admit that every third day of the week. Sure. Well, turn the corner for me uh, and move me from traditional psychiatric approach, which was, I thought, generally ineffective, to a much more effective intervention, was to uh, incorporate what I call the third leg of the stool in, in the biopsychosocial approach. Uh, that uh, back then, the, the thinking about addictions was dominated by a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic view, which is that you could treat somebody while they were drinking or drugging. Uh, and once you discovered the underlying cause uh, and resolved that, the person would, would be able to resume normal drinking or normal use of the substance. That was a very uh, tightly held belief. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening, give it a thumbs up, or write a positive review. I believe that uh, there's something different about the biology of these people so that they could never use in this normal way. And that uh, looking for underlying causes of the way they drink uh, was not an effective way of proceeding. So one of the fundamental differences with a traditional uh, addiction treatment approach is that you begin with abstinence. You don't work toward abstinence. So the, the first thing you do is help the person stop. And when it comes to some substances like alcohol or opioids, you need to, uh, to give them medications for withdrawal management. Uh, but the treatment starts with temporary abstinence, and the goal is to make that abstinence permanent. So uh, if you're working with people who are still drinking and drugging, they are in an impaired state of consciousness. And the analogy would be uh, walking into an operating room where someone was in the first stage of anesthesia and trying to do psychotherapy with them. It would not, uh, it would not be lasting once they got out of the, uh, out of the anesthesia. Right. Uh, now, now just to, just to split a hair here a little bit, George, um, Harm reduction is something that I, I think you would agree has a place in 
for example, social work or in, in public health policy? Or would you disagree? I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Harm reduction being, if I can define that, sort of like programs that give out needles, for example, and make, it, it, it says, look, we, we're not going to try to stop all the using that's going on. We're going to try to make using safe and, and therefore build a relationship. And that some percentage of those people who are coming to our clinics in the supportive environment so that they can continue using or they can get access to housing while they're using. Um, so there's, there's, so their basic needs are taken care of. Then at, at some point, some stage, some volume of those people filter into treatment. That's the hope. The, the data about that is limited, about filtering into treatment, just like the data about uh, vaping, helping people to get off. Uh, I, I am a, a great supporter of harm reduction. Uh, and it, it, there's, it's, uh, I, I think that it's not binary. I think that there's some gray areas between harm reduction and the kind of, of abstinence-based treatment that I just described. I was uh, for many years uh, criticized for actively using buprenorphine uh, as a, uh, which I regarded as compatible with abstinence, uh, and some people regard it and still regard as harm reduction that perpetuates the addiction. So I think. There's, there's lots of room for disagreement, but, uh, what, what I found is I can't do, I haven't figured a way to do harm reduction and abstinence based treatment under the same roof. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, they're kind of, it's, it seems like they're kind of working at, at, at different, different parts of the animal. Exactly. Exactly. Different, uh, that, that's the way I put it. We're, we're all, uh, have one piece of the elephant here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, buprenorphine. Can you explain? Is 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 that methadone? Methadone. Buprenorphine is basically an alternative to methadone. It is. We've only had it since two thousand and three. We've had methadone since the nineteen sixties. Uh, so we know much more about methadone. But it is a. It's called a partial agonist. Buprenorphine is, which means it has some of the properties of uh, of a full agonist like. A uh, heroin or, uh, oxycontin, but it's got, it doesn't have so many of the downsides. You can't overdose on it. it it's really, if you take it, uh, sublingually, you can't really get high on it. So it's a compromise. Uh, and for some people, it's kind of like a, a walking cast, uh, that people can stay on the rest of their lives. Some people uh, want to uh, get off of it as soon as they can, but it is. Uh, and, and when you jump to the um, to, into nicotine, there is an equivalent medication called varenicline or Shantex, which again is a partial nicotine agonist. That, uh, in my view, both buprenorphine and and uh, varenicline provide a transition for someone, a biological transition from the active using state to the abstinence state. And in terms of harm reduction, if they stay on those agents indefinitely, uh, they function well. There's no evidence of long-term harm. <clears throat> the, uh, and in fact, yesterday I, I was at uh, NIH where they're doing to me a very important study of looking at people who are on buprenorphine over extended period of time, 
<clears throat> one of the things that we know about opioid addicts, for example, is that their dopamine systems are disordered as a result of their using uh, the opioids. And uh, these the studies aren't finished yet, but it looks like when people are on buprenorphine or methadone, their dopamine systems heal in ways that uh, uh, move them back to a normal state, which is very important. It means that you can use these medications over the long term. And we people have been on methadone for decades and, and are doing well. So we know that uh, behaviorally, but to have the neurobiology to support that is, is really important because there's so many uh, I mean, stigmatizing moralistic biases against harm reduction, methadone, buprenorphine. Right. No, they're really necessary uh, elements in any holistic treatment program that's going to be effective for all levels of abuse. I like your word holistic because to me, holistic is the opposite of orthodoxy. And the trouble with orthodoxy is it begins to rule out potentially useful interventions. And these yeah. problems are so hard to treat that we need everything that's going to uh, work. Yeah. Yeah. My, my saying uh, has always been, if it works, I'm interested. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you right, know, careful, right. let's figure it out. Um, what do you think, uh, is anybody talking about or looking at an additional step down? So you're talking about methadone or buprenorphine as a as a walking cast or a crutch. That's uh, a harm reduction step, and then they're being supported potentially with other medications to to uh, treat, for example, underlying depression, underlying trauma, underlying anxiety, compulsive compulsivity. What about um, effective use of therapeutic ketamine? Is anybody talking about that in, in the, uh, the graduation? There's a lot of interest in that. Uh, I'm very cautious. So by all means, let's look at it, but, but in a cautious, studied way. Yeah, psychedelics are in the same. I, I did an episode with Dr. Michael Mithofer, who is the lead uh, investigator. And one of the people, including the people at that, that MAPS, um, that have really one over, if I can say that, uh, the FDA um, from its paranoia, well-founded paranoia from the 60s, uh, cases of abuse, Timothy Leary um, giving, you know, Harvard psychiatrist giving a LSD to his students, just saying, let's just try this, you know. So there's, there was abuse in the, in the well-intentioned use of psychedelics. Um, so there's a lot of changes. And just to make a point of distinction, ketamine sounds like, and I wonder what you think about this, but it sounds like it's been in the experimental stage for at least 10 years. Now it's FDA approved for treatment of suicidality. On the one hand, so we have the FDA saying, go ahead and use this. And then, it can, of course, because it's approved as a general anesthetic, it can be used off-label for microdosing. And the, the difference is between somebody using special K on the street and getting an IV infusion is, is a, is a major difference in dose. That's my understanding. They treat people who are addicts safely without getting hooked on ketamine. Are you skeptical of that? Uh, yeah, I'm skeptical. I mean, again, when I, uh, in, in 73, when I said that uh, I thought that, 
it's possible for people to recover on an outpatient basis. Uh, I was uh, addressed with a lot of skepticism, and I think that was well-placed. It took me about 10 years to uh, to convince uh, people that this could be done, and now it's it's mainstream. It's being done all over. So uh, by all means, uh, explore, but uh, I, I also saw things like ultra-rapid uh, uh, detox uh, using, uh, putting people under anesthesia and using naloxone and naltrexone, uh, and that had enthusiasm. There were billboards advertising that, and, and and after some people died and their practitioners went to jail, uh, it was reassessed. And I, and I, I think the problem with something like the naltrexone is it probably has a place, but because the practice out, out, uh, uh, kind of overreached and, uh, and the methodology wasn't followed, as a result, something that could have been useful is now not going to be used. It, uh, things like MDMA, uh, uh, were, uh, initially found to be promising, uh, interventions, uh, decades ago when they were put, uh, uh precipitously on into schedule one, uh, and not researched. And they're now being brought out for examination. Same thing with cannabis. Uh, cannabis had a, had a mainstream medical benefit that in the 1930s was locked away. Research was shut down, practice was shut down, and it's being rolled out now. So I think all of these things are potentially promising. It's a, a matter of, of going about it in a scientific uh, way, as opposed to overly enthusiastic on the one hand or overly fearful on the other. There's a middle ground here. There's a middle ground. Yeah, that's really well said. I'll refer our listeners to an episode I did with Dr. Samoon Ahmed. Uh, who, a, a medical researcher on cannabis, because uh, cannabis is, as you said, uh, if there's any one example of, of of the demand outstripping the knowledge that we have, it would be probably cannabis. People using cannabis recreationally at high high levels, especially young people, and he cautions and makes the the point, especially to providers, healthcare providers. That there's no safe use of cannabis for children and for people under 20, under 22, in his opinion. Um, but there are uses, and does it have a place? Like, well, you know, that we're, we're learning about it. We're still learning about it. Um, you mentioned NIH earlier. It seems like that that is because the NIH is thankfully very interested in all these topics, um, and they're studying quite a bit. So there's it seems to be a good place to follow a lot of the literature on psychedelics and alternative treatments. Yeah, that's there's a lot of misinformation out there. But if, if you go to the NIDA website, uh, which I, I believe is uh, drugabuse.gov, uh, you can uh, you can trust what's on there. And specifically, Nora Volkow, who is the the head of it, has a blog, uh, and uh, I have a high level of confidence. Uh, in, in what she has to, uh, to say, both about the biology of it, but also about the, the, the practical problem. And it, it's also very well displayed. The graphics are good. Yeah. They condense, uh, uh, material from other places. So that's, I think, a good source of information. 
Yeah, that's a good point, George. There's, we, of course, we live in an age of, of people who don't really read. Um, well, that's a whole other topic. But for those who are whose professions depend on reading and staying up with it, you can find it's not very hard to find uh, very good information out there. So it's, I think that's an important reminder to all of us to stay current. Um, let's get back to nicotine for a moment. Um, and I'm curious about this opioids and nicotine because. In some ways, I'm a little surprised. I, I think it's fantastic what you're doing because I totally agree with you. Nicotine is incredibly damaging, right, to people's health and mortality. On the other hand, we're in a epidemic. I mean, at least, um, I, you know, you can respond to this, but isn't the opioid epidemic far worse? I mean, don't, don't we need all hands on deck for the opioid epidemic? I wouldn't diminish that, right? But the, the numbers are striking. We, we lost uh, 100,000 people due to opioid overdose last year. <clears throat> At the same time, we lost almost half a million people to uh, nicotine. So wow. five times the amount and the amount of attention paid to the opioid. I'm glad the opioid thing was getting attention, but it's distressing to see something that's so much bigger uh, getting uh, very little attention. And, and I, obviously, it's more dramatic if, if somebody uh, who's perfectly healthy one day dies the next day at the age of 20. I've had too many tragic experiences like that with my own patients. But I got interested in this because I watched uh, my alcoholic and drug addict people uh, painfully but successfully get sober uh, and, and recover from drugs only to die of nicotine. Uh, and mm. that is, that's horrifying to me. Bill Wilson himself died of uh, nicotine. He had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and, um, and emphysema and he died a miserable death. But before he died, he put in the big book a, a small vignette cautioning people in recovery to keep smoking. And uh, people still quote that to me, and it's still in the big book uh, to this day. And it's going to stay in the big book in the new edition. Uh, so there's a paradox. Did I catch that right? He, Bill Wilson told people to keep smoking? Right. There's a chapter in the big book called The Family Afterwards. In, and uh, it, it's about families in which Bill Wilson, who wrote most of the big book, pretended that somebody else was writing that chapter. He pretended he was a family member. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, somewhat gratuitously, he put in a, a, a vignette at the end of a man who was doing very well in his alcohol recovery, but his wife was nagging him that he was drinking too much coffee and smoking too many cigarettes. So there was an equivalent between the two, as if they were the same. Yeah. And yeah. The, the man finally deferred to his wife, stopped smoking, and went back to drinking. The story goes on that, that they saw the error of their ways and the person went back to smoking, stopped drinking, and is now a satisfying, a satisfactory member of AA. And, uh, wow. that Bill con concluded this was not a burning issue. And I, I would, I, he is an amazing guy who has saved so many lives, but like everybody, he made a mistake or two. And, uh, one of them was not only continued to smoke himself, 
but creating a culture in AA where uh, where this is seen as safe. And, and uh, if, uh, they're, they're one of the few places you'll see a lot of people smoking publicly now. If you see, uh, if you drive around and see people smoking publicly, they're probably on a smoke break during an AA meeting. Exactly. I was going to say the same thing. It's 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 a caricature, but it's true. It's absolutely true. One of the worst things that I ever heard was a patient who came up to me saying, you know, Doc, I had my first cigarette in 20 years on one of your smoke breaks. And wow. So right now, uh, residential rehab programs are a dangerous people for a place for people who are trying not to smoke. About 11% of people uh, who are non-smokers who go into residential rehab programs begin smoking or return to smoking. Wow. Uh, in wow. It, it almost sounds like we need a black box warning on residential drug treatment. Right. Right. Exactly. right. The, the warning will Caution. not be effective. No. You need you need something. And, and they've tried to actually forbid smoking in the treatment centers. They've done it in some states. Why aren't people paying attention? Why isn't the money flowing towards nicotine addiction recovery? A lot of treatment people don't want to work with people who are unlikely to change. And that, that certainly is one reason that, that treatment people have stayed away from people with alcohol and other drug pro, uh, problems because they typically are resistant to change. Uh, and that's also true of people in, uh, with, with nicotine addiction. They are, uh, they say that they're not, they're, they're not prepared to change. But the differences between the two are very powerful. Uh, the, the people who have alcohol and drug problems, typically their reason not to change is that they will tend to insist that they don't have a problem. What's different about the nicotine people, this gets back to your question about the lack of attention, uh, is that they know they have a problem, but they are despairing of being able to do anything about it. So 70% of smokers uh, want to quit. And of those, 80% have actually made attempts to quit. Uh, and so my, I think that, that the reason that it doesn't get attention is not because people don't think they have a problem, but because they're so discouraged. And that's why, uh, part of the reason I'm gravitating back to internal family systems, because one of the many things that they do is they present themselves as what they call hope merchants. And, and, if, if you can convince a hopeless patient, uh, well, hopelessness clearly becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if you can give people realistic hope, that can be an enormously uh, motivating factor. So what I'm doing is I'm going to my, my, uh, my vapors and my smokers and saying, you know what? I know you've tried four or five times in smoking cessation. You've tried all these, uh, typical, uh, uh interventions. But you haven't tried the things that work for people who have recovered from alcohol and, and other opioid addictions. And if you do that, uh, you will have a much better chance. And uh, simple things like using medications properly can make an enormous difference. Medications, uh, the, the, one of the great things with uh, nicotine addiction is we have all kinds of effective medications. The problem is that they're not used. Or if they're used, they're, they're used improperly in too low of a dose or for too short a time. So it's not rocket science to simply increase the dose and use things longer. That's uh, So I'm thinking it hasn't gotten attention 
because uh, people haven't paid, uh, haven't felt like they could do much for it. Uh, buprenorphine, when buprenorphine uh, uh, was put in our hands and our, our treatment outcomes with opioid addicts dramatically improved, uh, the number of people being interested in treating these people increased. Unfortunately, or coincidentally, we the opioid epidemic hit at about the same time as buprenorphine came. So it doesn't look like buprenorphine had the impact that it has. Uh, but if we didn't have buprenorphine, uh, the opioid epidemic that we're seeing now would be much, much worse. Much worse, yeah. You made some really good points there, George. And and I was, it was, one of them was on the tip of my tongue as well, going full circle back to talking about internal family systems. Um, with, with uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, the Hope Merchant, uh, effect of Dick Schwartz's uh, model. And by the way, I think that should be the, the title of one of your books, Realistic Hopefulness. Right? Hopeful realism. Um, you know, it's, it's something I think that uh, is, you know, operationalizing that. If, if I could summarize for people who aren't familiar with IFS, in internal family systems, what it is, it, it would be that very thing. It's it's an operationalized, systematized way of delivering or injecting realistic hope. You know, it's it's working with one part of a person at a time, dealing with that particular part's concerns, fears, worst memories, nightmares, paranoias, and addressing them with a, a realistic assessment, and we could say, I think, a mindful approach, which is to say, well, if we take one more step into this state or, or place that the, the part is afraid of going, let's see what happens. And if nothing bad happens, we'll take two steps. And if nothing bad happens, then we'll take another step. How did you learn about IFS? And what is your impressions? What have your impressions been so far about contribution that it's making in the field? I've been very interested in the past with uh, uh, trauma survivors because a, a tremendous number, particularly of women uh, who have substance use disorders, uh, are, are childhood trauma survivors. So I was used to doing traditional trauma work uh, with parts. Uh, Back in the, uh, in the nineties. And, uh, when I, uh, I encountered IFS, which I learned about for the first time just, uh, within the past year, uh, they were speaking, uh, language that was familiar to me, uh, in, in terms of parts work. But also what I liked about it so much is that one of my frustrations in working in substance use disorders was that the, the dynamic therapy, psychodynamic therapy, which I was trained in, I could never find a space for. And what I watched was that the psychological thinking about substance use disorders uh, transitioned from one dominated by what was called denial, uh, that the addicts were in denial of their problem. I think that's a, a misappropriation of a psychodynamic conflict. Uh, but they, uh, in, in recent years, uh, they've moved to, to uh, the concept of motivational interviewing, which is based not on denial, but on ambivalence, which is a much more internally dynamic process. Uh, 
uh, they, motivational interviewing doesn't talk about parts. But my patients for years would say, you know, doc, I've got a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder. And then they're each talking into my ear, one saying, it's okay to use, and the other one saying, don't use. So patients are comfortable with that kind of dialogue. When I just, when I discovered IFS, uh, what that, that, that made me think of was that motivational interview, that it, it's like motivational interviewing on steroids instead of one, uh, devil here and an and a angel there. There are multitude of opinions, parts, uh, not just on the side, but in front and in back. And the person is caught in the middle of this and they're frozen in indecision by all these conflicting parts. And the idea that you have aside from that, a self who can mediate between all these conflicting opinions and try to come to a rational consensus, uh, and break this paralysis of indecision gave me the, 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 the belief that in addition to the proper use of medications and uh, establishing these people in a supportive community, if you could psychotherapeutically get inside and talk about their experience, uh, that would be, uh, you come out with better outcomes. Everything comes out to better outcomes. So I'm really excited about applying this. And as, as you probably know, there's, uh, there's someone within, uh, IFS, uh, C. Sykes, who really is an expert in addictions. What would you like our listeners to know about where they can find you, um, and inf- information about nicotine recovery, some of the projects that you would like to be working on next? Uh, sure. I am just getting the logistics up. I'm going to have a website. Uh, the, the website address is tripletrack.com. Uh, and the triple track stands for the, the biopsychosocial approach, three legs of the stool that, uh, best understanding and best outcome. If, uh, if you come at, at uh, the problem from a biological, psychological and social community side. So website, uh, should be up, uh, hopefully fairly soon. But if, uh, uh, failing that, if anybody, uh, wants to reach me, they can, uh, reach me on email, which is G. Kolodner, K-O-L-O-D-N-E-R, at tripletrack.com. And tripletrack's just the way it sounds, T-R-I-P-L-E-T-R-A-C-K. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate you, Dr. Kolodner, and um, your work is well known in, in our community here in Washington, D.C., your reputation that, um, goes before you. So it's a it's a real privilege to speak with you and, and get to know you a little bit more, and, and I'm sure we'll be uh, hopefully crossing paths or collaborating, doing some IFS stuff at some point. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Kloner. Thank you for giving me this chance to talk with you. Hey, I've started a community for Soul of Life fans interested in talking about episodes or getting more information about some of my teaching on IFS, mindfulness, and relationship growth. Head on over to community.souloflifeshow to get access to this group of really cool people just like you who care about the show and want to talk about episodes or, or hear more, get access to courses, and, and support each other through life. That's what this is all about. Please leave an iTunes rating for the show and subscribe now wherever you listen to get more soul in your life. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.